Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, and our text will be this year from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 19. In the epistle, it's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and the gospel reading from Mark chapter 7, that's verses 1 through 13. We begin with our Old Testament reading out of Isaiah 29, verses 11 through 19. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. So, Immediately, the text is inviting us to consider what be, what came before it, right? The vision of all of this. Well, what is all of this? That would be a reference, if you look back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 10, which is subtitled in the ESV Bible um, in regards to the judgment upon Jerusalem. That's your context here. God is going to bring his judgment upon even the capital of his people. Even the place where his own temple dwells, where his own name resides, he's going to destroy it because they have been unfaithful to him. And so what's happening then in verse 11 is that this work of God is going to be hidden from them. It's going to become like the words of a book that is sealed. If the book is sealed, you can't open it, you can't read it. So here's the, the, the follow-up to that, right? Um, the people are going to take that sealed book, and they're going to want it read. And so they're going to take it to anyone they can, and the person that can read is going to simply say, I can't open it. And the person who can't read will very simply say, I can't read. A little humor there from the Lord, I think. And this is like the, the child, right, who who grabs a book and and brings it to their parents or their grandparents and says, read this, read this. They want to read. They want to know. But the Lord's judgment is so final, so total upon Judah that it's a sealed book. It will not be read. It will not be shared with them. Now, you do have a great New Testament connection to this as you think of, I think it's Revelation chapter 5, the the sealed book or the sealed scroll that has the seven seals upon it. And John begins to weep in this vision of, of the book of Revelation because no one can open the scroll. No one is worthy. And then the angel tells him that there is one. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll, and that is the Lamb, well, the Lion of Judah, but the Lamb of God, which is our Savior Jesus Christ. And so Jesus then begins to open those seven seals one by one. Now verses 13 through 19 in our text are going to all be one paragraph. So let's go ahead and read them all together. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, 
Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. So, here we have the rest of our text, and we get the Lord's speech, what the Lord has to say to his people as he has sealed the book from them, so they don't know his ways, his ways are hidden. Verse 13 describes to us a people that speaks the right words but doesn't actually love the Lord. They don't actually have faith. They just It's just motions. So they draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, so they say the right stuff. They've been taught to say the right things. But it's all, that's all that it is. Their hearts are far from me. Jesus is going to pick this up in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, and Mark chapter 7, which is our gospel reading for this weekend. So we'll, we'll see more of that, more of that verse before we, we finish today. But instead of focusing on it then now so much, let's go to verse 14. Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. It's an interesting phrase, right? So because this people does not, does not have faith, God is going to do wonderful things with them. what comes in the next couple of verses is going to be speech about God's judgment. And this is worth remembering for us that the, the miracles of God also include the negative things or the things that we would consider to be negative, right? So think of the ten plagues in the Exodus of all the things that God wrought in that place. Those were miracles for the Israelites, Right? wondrous things that God did for them. Were they miracles for the Egyptians? Well, they didn't work in the Egyptians' favor, but they were miracles nonetheless. They were still wondrous works. They would cause you to stare at them and wonder, to, to want to learn of what is going on. So when God does a miracle, it often it often has two sides to it. Not all of them do. Well, I don't even know if we can say that. 
So even the miracles of Jesus of healing, right? We would think of those as only being positive, but the virus or the demon is driven out. So there's the negative side of it for them, even though it's a wondrous work still. And so here, God is going to bring about his judgment upon the wicked and upon the oppressor. And this is a thing of wonder. It is a wonderful thing and it will bless some, but it will also be judgment for some. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The discernment of the discerning will be hidden. So what we see here is that they're gone. I mean, essentially. The wisest of men, the discerning of men, they're nothing anymore. They are brought low. And this could be a reference to maybe a comparison that their wisdom and their discernment compared to the Lord's is nothing. But there's probably a little bit more of the judgment angle to this in that they will not they will simply not be there any longer. That in his judgment, the Lord will remove them. He will have ended their time on this earth. Verse 15 then starts to talk about how the wicked hide their ways from Yahweh. So they hide their counsel from him. They say rhetorically, who sees us? Who knows us? Thinking that they truly can hide their ways from the Lord, but they can't. The Lord sees all. The Lord knows all. Yahweh cannot be avoided. It cannot be hidden from. Adam tried in the garden, right? That didn't work out. Many have tried to hide from God. Think of Jonah and the prophet's writings. He knows exactly where they are. He knows their thoughts. He knows their ways. Verse 16, you turn things upside down. So instead of God being in charge and king over man and creation... Man seeks to flip it around so that man is in charge and man can do what he pleases and that God is subordinated to us. That's their goal. And you see that again with their the stuff in verses 15 well, and 14 as well. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? So you've got two rhetorical questions or two statements here from the clay coming up. And... I mean, this is a picture that you can visualize, especially if you've ever actually done clay pottery. If you've done that medium, if you've done that work, thrown a pot on a, on a wheel, for example, you can see this. And that could be something that you could do with your children as a, a family devotion for this kind of a text. You know, you have a, just get the Play-Doh out. Let them build stuff and then talk about how that creation that they just made has no ability to say to its maker, 
to you. He did not make me, or he doesn't have understanding. God is the potter, and we are but clay. He made us, he formed us, he gives us breath, he gives us life. We have no right, we have no authority to challenge him, to reject him, any of those sorts of things, uh, to think that we're better than him. And yet in our rebellion we often do. And so the first statement, he did not make me, this is how I often envision the creation of the devil going, right? That the Lord made the devil to be one of the angels, and yet the devil rebelled pretty much right from the beginning, right? We don't know specifically when the angels are made. They are part of creation. They are creatures that the Lord has made, which means that they would be made sometime in that creation week. And yet right away on day seven, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, whichever of those names you wish to use for him, already on day seven, he has started his corruption, it would appear. We don't actually know which day the devil enters the garden and causes Adam and Eve to fall, tempts them to fall, I should say, he does not cause it. There have been theories that it might have been as early as day seven. When God rests, the devil works. Now, we do this in our rebellion as well. I don't need God. I can do this myself. I'll turn to medicine to seek a long life. I will turn to the works of my own hands in order to provide for me so that I have food for tomorrow and the next day. Those are all ways of saying that we don't need God in our lives. We we have no need of a potter. We are good enough as the clay. Or we actually think we're the potter. The second one, he has no understanding. So the clay, challenging the potter, the one who made it, saying, oh, he doesn't know anything. Probably the closest we'd get to this is, you know, God doesn't understand. He doesn't understand my pain, my suffering. He doesn't understand what I'm going through, those sorts of statements. We actually have a Bible passage about this in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. You can feel free to look that one up but essentially is saying that Jesus, as our great high priest, that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, for he has endured temptation as we have. So Jesus, the potter who became clay and then was shattered on our behalf, he does understand. We can go to him. Verse 17 is going to return to that judgment theme. Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. So Lebanon is north of Israel. Um, 
a little ways. Their destruction is prophesied in chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 10, verse 34, here, and then also again in chapter 37, verse 24. So four times in Isaiah's book, we see that Lebanon will be destroyed by the Lord. Essentially, what this is saying, because it doesn't really sound like judgment, does it? Lebanon is known for its mighty cedars. I mean, even Solomon was sending for them from, from the king of Lebanon back in the time when he was building both the temple and his palace. These cedars were a legend. And so for the Lord to basically clear it and replant it, he's going to wipe out Lebanon and he's going to turn it into a, just a fruitful vineyard, basically, you know, or a, a, a plain to be harvested with grain. He's turning it over. Verse 16, right? You turn things upside down. God and his judgment is turning things upside down. It will be a forest again, but not a forest of cedars. It will be a forest of fruit of some kind, whether that's, again, grain, or if it's vines that grow grapes for, for wine or whatever it may be. Just God's judgment clearing the land and replanting it. And then you come to verses 18 and 19, which are no longer the, the negative side of this judgment, right? These things become the positive side. So the book has been sealed, but verse 18, the deaf shall hear it. The deaf will hear the words of the book, which is interesting, right? To hear the words of a book means somebody has opened the book, somebody's reading the book, and the sound goes into your ear. The deaf can't hear. That doesn't work for them, but they will hear. Out of their darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. So the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the meek will obtain fresh joy, and the poor among man shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. This might take your mind to Jesus and the Gospels. I mean, you can consider verse 14, right? The wonderful things with wonder upon wonder that the Lord is going to do. The deaf hearing, the blind seeing, those are wonders, right? This goes to Jesus' ministry, though. Specifically, you can go into Matthew chapter 11 and look at verse 5. Jesus is going to say that these are the very things that he does. He gives the deaf hearing. We see those miracles in the New Testament. He gives the blind their sight. He gives the poor reason to rejoice. And he gives the meek reason to have joy. This he does. And he continues to do even to this day. We can also turn to Matthew chapter 5 on this one and look at the Beatitudes and, and see how these things get mentioned there as well with the poor and the meek being listed off as blessed in the Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Something like that from Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning, the Beatitudes. So God's judgment is going to fall upon his people of Jerusalem and Judah, but somehow... In that judgment, he will also work good. 
Now, we know that the Lord keeps a remnant of his people, even when the Babylonians come and destroy Judah. Um, not uh, In this case, not, it's, it's significantly further afterwards because Isaiah is probably 100, 150 years early. Israel is destroyed. Judah is destroyed. But God re redeems a remnant. He lets them rebuild Jerusalem, and he does eventually send them the Savior that he promised to them long before, as Jesus will come into their midst to be the potter who takes on clay. Our epistle text today from Ephesians 5, 22-33 ranks right up there near the top of the list of hated verses from the Bible in the American culture. So, naturally, that means we need to take a closer look, and we also probably need to cling to it, because, you know, it's God's Word. All right, so let's read from verses 22 to 24. This is divided neatly into two paragraphs for us. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In just those first two words, wives submit, there you have it. There's the anger, there's the, the foaming at the mouth reaction to the text, to the word of God, and so many tune out. Paul is a misogynist, he hated women, or it was just a cultural thing and we can ignore this. All those sorts of statements are so common, uh, even among the Christians in our era today. They don't want to hear this text. But let's take a look at it again um, and see why God is saying what the Lord is saying and if it should hold true today also. So submit to your own husbands. I'm going to leave that word submit for a moment because we can unpack what it means better after having read the full context of the paragraph. So submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice the comparison there. That's going to be key. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So we've got essentially an analogy. If you remember doing analogies when you were a kid in school, you know, Christ, colon, church, double colon thing, um, husband, colon, wife, right? You remember that? Uh, Christ is to the church as the husband is to the wife. So the relationship that Christ has with the church is to guide and shape and form the relationship between husband and wife. That's a profound statement in and of itself. Are we still in such a hurry to throw the text out the window? Or can we learn from this? Next verse. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we have that same analogical relationship going on here. So the church submits to Jesus, wives submit to their husbands. 
So in order to understand what it means when it says wives submit to your husbands, we actually first have to take a step back and say, what does it mean that the church submits to Jesus? Because there's your point of comparison that the Lord himself is making here. Is it bad that the church submits to Jesus? If your answer is no, then the other is also true. It is not bad for the wife to submit to her husband. Does the church no longer submit to Jesus today? If the answer is no, then it holds true for the other part of this picture as well, that the wife should also still submit to her husband even today, even in the egalitarian, everybody's equal 21st century American culture. And by the way, I would argue that that has done significant harm to not not only marriages, although it has done that, it has done harm across the board to any relationship between male and female, and even, again, to male and female. So, now, as we look at this, then, we have to ask that question. In order to understand what it means for a wife to submit to her husband, because it's compared to and paired with the church's submission to Christ, what does it mean that the church submits to Jesus? This isn't the woman-make-me-a-sandwich kind of a conversation point, although you still hear that kind of description that railing against, what does it mean that we submit to Christ? That I submit to Christ means that I entrust to him my life. I entrust to him that he will care for me, that he will provide for me, and that I am to live as his. And so also the wives would then submit to their husbands in this way, that they would entrust themselves into their husband's care, that they would look to their husband for love and provision and such things. Rather than seek to be the master, rather than seek to be the head, right? I don't seek to be God. Although in my sinful nature, I, I do seek to be God over my own life. But I repent of that, you repent of that, we as the church repent of this. And so also the wives do not seek to be the head over their husband. This is actually the Genesis 3 curse. So many people misread the curse of Eve given in Genesis 3, that her desire would be for her husband. They read that as a good thing, but it's part of the curse. It's not that she's going to have physical attraction to man. That's not bad. It's that she is going to seek to master over him. She is going to seek his headship rather than submitting to him as she was created to do. And you actually see that in the next chapter in Genesis 4. The same language is used in the Hebrew and in the English. Good translation workmen who did that. I don't know who did that, but the ESV translation crew. They translate verse chapter 4 very well as Cain is wrestling with his temptation to kill his brother and we see God speaking to him afterwards and and what does God say? That sin 
desires to master over Cain. It's that same desire word from chapter 3, from the curse of Eve. She is going to seek her husband's role. And so here, this text in Ephesians 5 is the created order, the way God has ordained things to be from the very beginning, from when he made heaven and earth, and he created man and woman, male and female, and he gave them the good gift of marriage. Now, before we transition then into the second paragraph, I want to point out to you that inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul does this excellent rhetorical device. A lot of people will attack the scripture authors as, as not being intelligent. But this is a this is a clever move, right? So Paul is going to get the hearer's attention in order to tell them what they really need to hear. Now, what do I mean by that? So, first century culture is going to be more patriarchal than 21st century culture is right now, where the men are the heads of their households. The women are to submit in those relationships, although that doesn't mean it's a rosy picture for everybody. It doesn't mean they're actually doing things as created order would suggest. There's still going to be sin in those relationships where the men hurt the wives or the wives seek to steal the authority. But regardless, the men are hearing this in the public proclamation of the congregation, right? This letter has been sent to the Christian church in Ephesus as they have gathered together. And this is being read to all of them out loud at the same time. They are hearing this. And so you can picture that scene. You can picture the husbands and their reaction to hearing verses 22 through 24 read aloud. They're almost celebratory at that point, right? Almost a, uh, yeah, you tell them. You tell them, Paul. Paul has the attention of the men in order that he may then tell the men what to do, and they will hear him. And as hard as it is to believe this in our culture again, he gives the men, the, men, the male, the husband, the harder thing. Now, why do I say this is a rhetorical device, and I'm, I'm positive that that's what Paul's doing? Because he will do it twice more right after this section. So there are no chapter breaks in the original writings of Paul. Verse 33 immediately leads into chapter 6, verse 1. And we see this in verses 1 through 4, I think it is, with Paul talking to children first and then parents. And then right after that, we see Paul talking to slaves first and then masters. He speaks to the lesser authority first, and then he doubles back and he gives the, the higher authority their instruction too. So, what is the instruction to the husband? 
Why has Paul baited their ears to make sure that they hear? I'm just going to start with verse 25. I mean, it's all one paragraph. We got we'll come back to it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So entrust yourself to your husband that he will care for you and provide for you. Let him be the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, sacrifice your life for her. Give up everything for her. How's that sound, ladies? How would you like to submit yourself and trust yourself, the care of you, to one who would give everything for you? Doesn't sound as bad now, does it? Christ, in his ministry, taught his disciples this, that the one who wants to be greatest among you must be slave of all. Christ does not give authority in order that it can be lorded over others. Right? He has that discussion with his disciples. You know how the Gentiles lord it over you, but it may, may it not be so among you. Christ, the Son of Man, did not come into this creation to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it is in marriage. So it is with any authority that God gives. We lead by serving. We lead by sacrificing. So men, as you have been called into the gift of marriage, as you have been called into the headship that is a husband, your job, your task in that relationship is to die to yourself and serve your bride, that she may see the love of Christ flowing from you to her. And that's hard. Because our sinful nature, our sinful Adam, still clings to us. The sinful nature leads us to think of caring for ourselves. And and notice how diligently that sinful nature still clings. Even in the Christian church today, self-help is a big deal. It is unfortunately a major deal in a lot of preaching where it's like actually the theme of that preaching. But even if you have good, biblically solid preachers who are preaching to you from God's word rather than from whatever people want to hear because their ears are itching, even then, there is so much focus in our culture on taking care of one's self. And while we hear bits and pieces of that in this text, That's not the angle Paul is coming from. We'll talk about that again in just a minute. Instead, we are taught to give everything, to not focus on the care of self, 
instead to care for someone outside of ourself. Because that is the Christ-like thing. That is what Jesus did. And that's how this paragraph is going to proceed to teach. So let's go ahead and double back. Let's read verse 25 again with the context of the rest of the paragraph as well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, we've talked about verse 25. Now we unpack it. What did Christ do for the church? He gave himself up for her. He died for her. This is then the call for the husband to give up himself, to die to himself and his own desires and interests in this life, and to live instead for his bride. Well, actually, we still live for Christ first. Jesus is the priority. But in terms of our earthly relationships, die to self, in order to serve our bride. Now, we see some of what this looks like then, right? Jesus sanctified her. He made her holy. He made her pure. He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that's a reference to baptism. Now, admittedly, men, we cannot do that, right? But what we can do is we can lead and guide our wives in the faith, which is our call as husband, as father, too, we have that responsibility of being being the spiritual head of our family, of sharing Christ, of, of teaching our family the faith. And so guide your wives in all things to Christ. This obviously does not mean that you are the one sanctifying her, but you are bringing her to the one who does. Bring your wife to church. Pray with her at night. Pray with her in the morning. Read God's word with her. Study God's word with her. Answer her questions. And when her questions stump you, or when you have questions of your own, ask your pastor. Deepen your study of God's word together. Pray it together. Sing together. Lead your wife in these things that she may be in Jesus always. Verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Do we have spots and wrinkles? Do we have blemishes? Of course we do, right? As, as the sinners that we are. But what does Jesus do with them? Does he hold them over our heads and remind us constantly how we fail? No, he forgives. He forgets, and he continues to care for and provide for us and lift us up and call us into his service. So it is for you, men. Your wife is not perfect. Sorry, ladies. But you are to treat her as though she is. 
You are to speak about her as though she is, right? We do not see Christ talking to other people, gossiping behind his disciples' back about how stupid his disciples were, although they were fools. No, he presents them as his own people. When he stands before the Lord on Judgment Day, he's not going to rattle off to the Father all the terrible and foolish things that you and I have ever done. No, he's going to stand before the Father, and he's going to say that we are his. Men, we do this for our brides. You don't speak bad about your wife to your friends or your co-workers, to your parents or her parents. Your bride is perfect. That is how you present her to the world around you. And honestly, it's how you treat her in person too. You don't hold things against her. You don't hold grudges against her. You forgive, and as best you can, you forget. That, that's a little difficult for us in our sinful flesh. But we forgive. Die to yourself. There is no room for pride in your marriage. There is no room for keeping records in your marriage. There is no room for trying to have me, me, and my way in your marriage. That will only lead to harm for both. So you see that in verse 28, right? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So you see that connection here, and that's going to get mentioned in verse 31 here in just a moment. We are one body, husband and wife, just as Christ and the church are one body, right? The Christian is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are the many members of that body. That picture is here. So he who loves his wife loves himself because she is you. One flesh, not two. One. And our culture does so terribly at understanding this idea. I don't know if as a Christian church we've ever really truly firmly believed this idea. But we certainly don't in our time today. We don't view the two as being one, as husband and wife being one flesh any longer. We still talk about them all the time as being two. We treat them that way in the law. We treat them that way even in our churches. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Good reminder. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Honestly, as, as we unpack this text, that's probably the hardest part for me to unpack because we see a lot of that, right? We do see a lot of people today in the brokenness of sin and creation that have hated their own flesh and harmed their own flesh. Let's double back, though, and see the bigger picture. Again, the sinful nature tends to not lead us in that direction. The sinful nature tends to cause us to think only of ourselves and to focus on the care of the self. So, the, your normal person, of course they're going to care for themselves because that's what they want to do in order that they can live their best life, in order that they can have it all, that they can pl be pleasured in so many different ways. Christ cares for 
the church. So we care for our wives. Members of one body together. And then Jesus, Jesus quotes this. Paul quotes this. Uh, one of the, thus already one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament, Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is the introduction of marriage to us in Scripture and in creation, as God gives that instruction. And you can contrast this today with cohabitation, right? This is actually the created order for things. So you first leave home, the husband first leaves home, the man, and then he gets married, and then the two become one flesh, you know, the act of sex together. But honestly, you can challenge whether this is a two-step process or a three-step process. The, the leaving of father and mother is step one. But this holding fast to the wife and becoming one flesh, is that two things or is it only one? That's a fantastic conversation to have in Scripture, right? To have a debate in Scripture on how this plays out. And you can do this sometime. Uh, and I think the church needs to do this sometime. Um, but you can see both both sides to this conversation. So it's a neat conversation to have. Does, does sex actually create marriage? Or does marriage happen first and then sex? We don't have time for that in today's podcast. Um, but just for your consideration. To study the, the text about Adam and Eve. To study the text even about Mary and Joseph. Um... 1 Corinthians chapter 6 has something to say on this one. Interesting stuff, nonetheless. We become one flesh with Christ in the time of our baptism or in the time of hearing the word of God proclaimed to us and we leave behind our sinful flesh. We leave behind the sinful world and the temptations that are here, although we do still get tempted by them. Why am I bringing verse 31 about leaving father and mother and holding fast to the wife? Why am I bringing that into the context of Christ and the church? Because Paul does in verse 32. So Jesus leaves his heavenly father and he clings to the church, his body that he has made for himself. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here, Paul has just given to us this beautiful section on marriage and what marriage should look like, the relationship between husbands and wives, and he takes a step back and he says all of this is actually about Jesus and the church. So in my time of working with couples who, who want to get married, um, I don't. I call it pre-marriage counseling. Um, I have historically asked them if they can name the three reasons that God's word gives for marriage. And I had. It's been a few years now, but a few years ago, I had a, a man challenge me. After we talked about the list of three, he challenged me and gave me a fourth, and he was so incredibly right. 
So the three that I had, <laughs> right, um, procreation, that is the idea of children, from Genesis 1, verse 28. Support, also from Genesis 1 and 2 there, the idea of the, the helper and such. And then uh, the physical companionship of marriage, which isn't just Genesis 1, 28, but also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he threw this one at me. And rightly so. So really, this is the number one purpose of marriage then, according to Scripture, as we know it. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage teaches us about Jesus. Marriage with our spouse teaches us about the faith. So as as a wife, the way that you look to your husband to care for you and provide for you, and the way that he does, right? In, in those good times, because your husband is a sinner too, in those good times where he has done that well, you see what Christ does for you also. Your, 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 your Lord cares for you through your husband. And men... As you care for your bride, as you die to yourself to care for your bride, you learn how Christ has died to himself to care for you. And the idea of forgiveness is in this too. As we forgive one another mutually in marriage. All these sorts of things that we can learn about our faith, about our Savior, about his love and care for us by looking to the way of husband and wife. So, having Added to that, Paul will then double back to husband and wife to conclude this in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's interesting that Paul phrases it this way, although you can see this um, in, in marriage today, in the way that men and women behave, you know, gen generally speaking, Women function on love, whereas men function on respect. And there is an entire book, a Christian counseling book, written on this topic called Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egerichs. It's okay. He's got some good stuff to say in there. Um, but he's coming right out of this verse. He took this verse and wrote a book on it, <laughs> essentially, um, from his perspective on things. There is so much benefit to wives respecting their husbands and so much benefit to husbands loving their wives and i'm going to lay before you the argument that both of those things ought to be unconditional men love your wives regardless of what she's done right die to self live for her christ loves you no matter how much you sin against him wives respect your husband no matter what he's done Those are difficult tasks. That gives you enough to do. right? This, this text gives you more than enough to do for a lifetime. But again, know that it all points you back to Christ and the church and his love and his care for you. 
That brings us to our gospel text, and as is common for me, uh, with little time for it. Uh, But we will read our gospel from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We are back from hiatus, in a sense, as we took three weeks off and jumped into John chapter 6, reading about Jesus being the bread of life. Now we return to Mark's text, and we'll be in Mark together for the next couple of months, um, up until the day of Reformation, where we'll take a break again for, oh couple weeks. Just one. Reformation and All Saints Day both, so two weeks before we jump back into Mark again. Now, when the Pharisees had gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. We'll come back to the the last paragraph here in just a little bit. So Jesus has gone to Gennesaret. He has done many healing miracles there. We don't have a smooth, exact timeline transition to our text for today of what's happened. There's no immediate in Mark's gospel account. Matthew records this kind of a thing as well. It's just somewhere in the midst of Jesus' ministry that the Pharisees come to him, and not just Pharisees, but also scribes, and specifically, Mark says they've come up from Jerusalem. Most likely, they've been sent to gather a report about Jesus and bring that intel back to the, the leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes. So they've come, they're observing and conversing with Jesus in various times, but they're observing things here, and they see that his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. Now, we can double back and say that this is just good practice, right? How many of you taught your children when they were growing up that before they eat their meal, they should go wash their hands? How many of you do this today? Especially in an era where we have become so hypervigilant about hygiene, right? It's good practice. But that does not make it salvific. That does not make it a thing of command from God himself. Unwashed, unbaptized, the Greek word for washing is, is baptizo. Um, so the, the disciples here have not washed their hands. And then we get this note about traditions of the Pharisees and even the Jewish people, because the Jewish people are led religiously by the Pharisees in many ways. They do not eat unless they wash first. So this is the tradition of the elders, not the command of God, but the tradition of the elders. Whether they're coming from the marketplace or or whatever they've been doing, they wash. They also have other rituals of washing various things like cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And again, we would look at that and say, that's good. It is good to wash. It is good to clean your dishes after dinner. Right? I have kids. And they make a mess, and the table is dirty, and we have to wash the table down. 
they make a mess on their chairs and the chairs are dirty we need to wipe the ta the chairs down too not just the base where they were sitting and the crumbs get there but somehow their messy little hands get all over the back of the chair and, and all kinds of things it's just good to clean that stuff not a problem the problem is that the pharisees end up insisting on these traditions over and against the commandment of God. We're going to come back to that. So, the scribes and the Pharisees then challenge Jesus with this idea. Why do your disciples do this? Why don't they walk in the tradition of the elders? Why are they disobeying the commandments of men? Is another way to take that. They're not listening to what we have told them that they ought to do. And so Jesus comes back at them with our Old Testament text for, from chapter 29, verse 13 of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You'll notice the wording is different. Jesus and his disciples, when they quote the Old Testament, quote from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. So you've got the Hebrew language that the Old Testament is originally written in. And well before this, at least a couple hundred years prior to Jesus and the disciples here, it is translated into the Greek language. And so that's the common Old Testament scriptures of their era. So when they quote from the Old Testament, they're quoting not out of Hebrew, but out of Greek. Whereas our English translation for us brings it from the Hebrew first. So we go to the Old Testament And we try to pair those things up, and they don't, they don't match word for word. But you've got the Old Testament verse is just translated Hebrew to English, whereas the New Testament one's been translated Hebrew to Greek to English. I hope that makes sense. Um, that's why you don't have the word for word like we might like it to be today. Now, the point, however, is that they speak God's word, but they don't actually believe. Just as we were talking about in the Old Testament reading, they have the Lord's word, they teach his commandments to the people, but they themselves don't actually believe. Instead, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. And that is a harsh statement and challenge, but he's going to give an example of it here to follow. So what they're saying, I mean, they're challenging Jesus, so he's going to challenge them back. And his challenge is... is the example of verses 9 through 13. So let's go ahead and read this one. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So there's some snark in this from Jesus, right? You have a fine way. It's not a fine way. It's an awful way of rejecting God's commandment in order to follow your own, your own traditions, your own commands. So he goes to Exodus 20, fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, and he also goes to Exodus 21, verse 17, uh, in reference to the, the punishment for not honoring father and mother. So here's God's command, but now here's what you say. So this example of Corban, 
the Pharisees teach, were teaching at that time, that if, if you wanted, you could, well, they're going to place the higher priority not on caring for the parents, but on giving to the temple. But it's worse than that because the gift offered to the temple is a pledge that doesn't actually have to be fulfilled at any time in the near future. Like, you can make this pledge that you're dedicating this to the Lord, but then you could still, in the Pharisee's mind, make use of that thing, for you know, that money for a time as you invest it in your, your work or whatever it might be. And you just avoid caring for your parents. So this is the picture of the elderly parents who need to be cared for by someone. And instead of caring for them, the son says, hmm, I'm, I'm going to give this, I'm going to dedicate this to the temple. So it's not going to help the parents. The son's going to keep it for himself, perhaps. If he ever gets around to giving it to God is another story. He might but even at that here, God is saying, God himself is saying, care for your parents. This is good and right to do. So that was one example. And Jesus then says that they have many of these sorts of things. They did expand the law significantly, adding numerous laws that the people must follow. That would be, that would be an interesting Bible study in and of itself. So the, the key here, the thrust from Jesus, is that we are to take God's word first. His command takes priority over our own, over our traditions, over our interests, over our desires, over anything. God's word is the priority point. As it points us to him, as it shares with us how we love God and how we love our neighbor, but primarily how he has first loved us. God.